Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I am here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim? What's up, Brian? I'm very happy to be here today. And, and I'm honored that you dressed up for the pod today. I, I dressed up exactly for the pod, and <laughs> I've decided for every podcast from now on, I'm going to wear a suit. This is only for the benefit of the, the dozen or so of you watching on YouTube, but <laughs> Tim is it's in very, a suit. Very optimistic. Tim is in a suit. I am, I am definitely not. Um, <clears throat> welcome to Embargo. Uh, this is now our third episode, so... Um, before we get started, just the standard disclaimer, we're not here giving legal advice, we're not sharing any confidential information, we're just here sharing our thoughts and impressions on a variety of different topics that are hot in the news at the moment in the international trade world. Um, and before we do get started, I do want to say, we do both want to say, um, a sincere thank you to everyone. We have, uh, we're recording this on March 5th. Um, our first two episodes have, have been posted and are up in the world, uh, and we have gotten some great comments and feedback from old friends, from new friends, from many different places, literally around the world. It's been pretty cool. So uh, thank you to everyone who's been listening and, and giving positive feedback. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, I really have had a, a lot of interesting conversations with people about the podcast, and it feels really good. So we appreciate it. And hopefully you'll enjoy the left, the next ones. Yeah. And we would love to hear from you, uh, with good, with bad, with ugly criticism. If you don't like Tim's tie, if you don't like my haircut or my beard, whatever, go, go it's easy fine. on the tie, go easy on the tie, but, um, anything is fair game. So it, we're easy to find LinkedIn, Twitter, email, whatever, please, uh, let us know what you think. Um, so without further ado, let's get started. We are going to start in a place where uh, not surprisingly, has uh, is uh, Iran centric. We're going to start with um, sort of topic one is kind of one A one B. We're going to start with um, the Hawk Bank criminal case in SDNY because there's been some recent developments there, and then we're going to pivot to a broader conversation about Iran and kind of looking into the crystal ball, reading the tea leaves with respect to what may be going on right now with the U.S. and Iran because I think there's some interesting signals out there that there might be. Um, some some movement perhaps in the some background. Theories. We have some theories, which we're going to share with you. Um, we've left our tinfoil hats at home, but we are going to share our theories with you. So, um, in terms of Hawk Bank, for uh, just as a quick primer on the Hawk Bank case, uh, this goes back now several years uh, in terms of um, sort of the life cycle of this case. There were, uh, as many who follow this may know, there were. Uh, two cases that were brought uh, against individuals uh, that were connected to Hawk Bank and the scheme that was alleged to have happened, which is, without getting too in the weeds, essentially the essence is Hawk Bank, which is a Turkish uh, state-owned bank in Turkey, uh, is alleged to have engaged in a kind of massive sanctions evasion scheme for the benefit of Iran. Uh, and it's uh, sort of taking proceeds of the Iranian um, national oil company and uh, converting them to gold and uh, engaging in fraudulent transactions that were meant to look like humanitarian transactions and, and a whole host of other things. The indictment is very, it's a long, interesting read. I would encourage anybody who's interested to go look at that. But for our purposes, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a multi-year sanctions evasion scheme in, involving a, again, a Turkish state owned bank and, uh, and Iran and to, to, for the benefit of Iran. So a few years back, two individuals, Reza Zarab and Mehmet Attila, were facing um, individual charges in connection with that same scheme in SDNY. Zarab ended up pleading guilty. Attila went to trial and was ultimately found guilty after a jury trial. Um, and so now we're a couple of years later, and late last year there was an indictment that was uh, returned against the bank, against Hawk Bank, and the sort of the most interesting, so first of all, it's noteworthy that a large state-owned bank is charged criminally in the United States for violating sanctions and a whole host of other things. That just doesn't happen very often. Usually you see uh, that, you know, they might go on the SDN list, they might be subject to other administrative penalties by OFAC or State Department or other, 
you don't see many large state-owned banks that get charged criminally, so that's notable. Criminal, I mean, companies in general are not going to trial or at least charged in a criminal court right. with court proceedings before some sort of plea. Um, it, it just doesn't happen very right. often. That's also also true as a, as a general matter. The other, so the, the wrinkle that kind of goes along with that is the fact that Hawk Bank is charged and they are trying their hardest to not actually make an appearance in court to contest the charges. They're trying, they're trying to have a U.S. lawyers enter what's known as a special appearance to essentially just contest jurisdiction of the U.S. courts and the U.S. government to even have this case against them. That's in a in the shorthand version. Very, very common in civil cases. Correct. Fact, and, and we've seen this in a, a case that I'm very familiar with from my time in government out in San Francisco uh, regarding some uh, state-owned entities in China and theft of trade secrets and economic espionage relating to uh, DuPont. That was a case where similar, there was a similar tactic that certain entities just didn't show up for years. Uh, and and so here, that's what it looked like was going to happen, is that Hawk Bank was just not going to make an appearance. They were going to try to have U.S. lawyers make an argument that they were not subject to U.S. jurisdiction without s actually submitting themselves to the jurisdiction of the court. And then a few interesting things happened. So they go back and forth on this. Um, that is kind of shot down by the court. It goes up to the circuit in, in the Second Circuit. And, and then there's a motion for contempt that's filed in late January by the U.S. government, which essentially says takes a very aggressive position which says, if Hawk Bank does not show for to make an appearance, we are recommending, we're asking the court to impose a, essentially a daily monetary penalty of a million dollars a day for the first week, double that for the second week, double that for the third week, double that for the fourth week, and on and on and on. So it just escalates and escalates. So you could get to some pretty massive numbers pretty quickly under the government's uh, theory of, of the sanction to be imposed for contempt. So within a matter of a few weeks, all of a sudden now, Hawk Bank's lawyers are saying, We're, we need to get some approvals from the board of the company, essentially the government in Turkey. And uh, once that happens, we're going to make an appearance and we're going to come for an arraignment and we're going to be back on track with a normal kind of criminal procedure. So my initial question, what do we think happened? What do we think it was? Was it the contempt motion from the government? Was it something else? What do we think changed the tune here? Because this is a pretty dramatic shift. Well, I mean, look, from a from a purely rational basis analysis of this, the the fines were big. The bank could have gotten in all sorts of trouble if it didn't show up, and including it, you really can't get a default judgment in a criminal case, so so a trial in absentia is not had. But but there could have been a contempt finding. There could have been huge fines. They could have been so big they would have put the bank out of business. OFAC could have designated the bank immediately, put it out of business that way. So they were facing a lot of risks. And so I think if you're just looking at this, um, you know, purely on a rational basis standpoint, you'd think maybe they just caved. Uh, on the other hand, those threats were there all along and they didn't cave. They went into it kind of fighting and kicking and screaming. And then all of a sudden something changed. And so, um, Potentially, given the involvement of Turkey and the, the, the fact that, at least according to media reports, the U.S. government has been involved in some of the, the other stages of this case, uh, particularly in the Zarab trial, where there were reports that uh, there were negotiations at the highest uh, level of the administration uh, in, in order to send Zarab back to Turkey uh, in, in, at the request of President Erdogan, it, it, it certainly is possible that there were uh, discussions that were had outside of court uh, between the U.S. and Turkey that also produced this result. Right, and also keep in mind that in addition to those two governments, we have the Iranian government that's also somewhere in this because, right. again, the underlying allegations are that Turkey was essentially acting in a conspiracy with the government of Iran to to, to evade sanctions, to help them kind of launder proceeds that were sitting in accounts well, with them. Well, one thing about this case that, that I've always thought was interesting, and it's not unique to this case, is that the money that was being moved back to Iran, um, by, allegedly by Zara, using Hulk Bank, allegedly by Attila, and, and he's now been convicted of it, um, all of that was 
indisputably the money of the Iranian government. It was their money that was sitting in a Turkish bank. And, and, and the Iranian government, I mean, people may not know this, but the Iranian government has money sitting in banks all over the world because one of the one one aspect of the sanctions, especially at the beginning of, of this sanctions regime and, and earlier back in the Obama administration, had been that, that that countries that wanted to continue to buy Iranian oil from the government of Iran could get waivers from the U.S. But the way the waivers worked was that if you say Turkey got a waiver, so so we can be concrete about it, the the way that the the waiver would work is Turkey could buy Iranian oil, but it had to put the the payments for the oil in a Turkish bank that the Iranians couldn't get at. And so that's the money that these people are accused of moving around. And so, yeah, the Iranian government has a big interest in this case because essentially what the scheme that's alleged is is that the Iranians were essentially stealing the, or, or evading sanctions in order to, to get, get their, their own, own money. money. That nobody would do. Yeah, that's right. exactly right. So that is an interesting dynamic that's behind this. So I think that's a good place. So again, three governments that are certainly involved in some form or fashion in this case. And in terms of evaluating what may have caused that sort of flip-flop on the part of Hawkbank, I think that's something to bear in mind. And, and so I think with that it is a useful point to pivot to the broader point that we want to talk about now, which is essentially what's up with the U.S. and Iran these days? Because... Um, you know, I think there are some interesting, there have been a number of interesting events over the past few months. I'm going to run through a timeline very quickly, and then we'll kind of break down. Tim has some, uh, Tim is a master of theories. He's going to, he's going to lay out. Put my aluminum foil hat on. He's going to put the tinfoil hat on. Um, And then we're going to, we'll, we'll sort of take it from there. So if we go back, we rewind a few months. We're back in October now of 2019. There is a, uh, the Treasury Department in the U.S. announces what's known as a humanitarian mechanism to allow trade in humanitarian goods with Iran. And for those who are familiar with this, you know that that has always been allowed. There are, there are exceptions to the general embargo to allow for humanitarian and medical goods of certain kinds uh, to be uh, exported into Iran. However, since the ratcheting up of sanctions the past couple of years, it's it's very, very difficult to find banks to help you do that business, to process payments, to issue letters of credit, to, you know, just do to do any of the sort of typical, um, you know, functions that you would need to do to ex- exercise or to execute any uh, commercial transactions. So this mechanism is clearly, it's the, by their own terms, they say we want to minimize the role of the Central Bank of Iran. We want to minimize the likelihood this gets that these types of goods get diverted for the benefit of the IRGC or other bad actors in Iran. We want transparency and enhanced due diligence. And we are basically opening this up to foreign governments and foreign banks. Come talk to us. And if you want to be involved in this and do a good thing for the citizenry of Iran, please do that. That's in October. In December, there's a prisoner exchange, and it is a grad student, U.S. grad student, who had been incarcerated in Iran for, I think, three-plus years on charges of espionage, who was swapped for a man named Masad Soleimani, who was a stem cell researcher who had been uh, who had been charged in federal court in Atlanta for essentially um, trying to uh, violate the sanctions by taking out uh, controlled goods out of the U.S. to to Iran, having to do with his research. And it was a bit of a cause celebre in the, in the scientific community because a lot of people said, well, this is unfair. He's being persecuted for just doing what he thought was sort of, you know, everyday academic or medical research, right? That's the, the sort of part and parcel of that. So there's a, there's a prisoner swap there. And I can tell you, having been involved in some of these in, in government, this goes to the highest levels. So this is the White House that decides to do this. And um, in fact, the day it happens, the president tweets about it and is kind of very complimentary of the Iranians, which is not uh, consistent with how he typically um, talks of them. And some unnamed sources at the time were sort of indicating like maybe this is a uh, a goodwill uh, sort of step to be taken that might start to uh, more discussions among the two countries. Of course, just a few weeks later, then the drone strike on General Soleimani and then the retaliatory strike by the Iranians. And we covered this a couple of episodes ago, so I won't go into details. And then another executive order from the U.S. to ratchet up sanctions to cover four new sectors of the economy that hadn't previously been covered. So where are we there? I don't know. That's a, But what, I will, what we will say about that is, uh, and Tim and I have talked about this a lot, 
as as sort of high as the tensions got at that moment, it it all kind of seemed to blow over relatively quickly, given the gravity of what was going on there. And we, you know, there were people talking about, are we going to about to go to war with Iran? And this is, you know, almost two months ago now, and things have things things kind of quieted down very quickly thereafter. I mean, not only did they quiet down, I mean, so so there was one of the ways that the sanctions were ratcheted up, um, particularly in the fall, was that various uh, Iranian governmental actors, including the Central Bank of Iran, were declared to be a global terrorists. And so the sanctions that, that are against Iran generally are bad, but the sanctions against global terrorists are worse. And putting the, the CBI onto the specially designated global terrorist list meant that even with, with respect to humanitarian trade, the Central Bank of Iran couldn't be involved. Right. And so, so that actually made, made it even harder to right. finance humanitarian trade. Right. After the, the Soleimani strike and the tensions heat up and new sanctions are imposed against Iran, recently, kind of without fanfare, OFAC ratcheted down the pressure on CBI. It actually created yep. a general license, General License 8, that, that allowed trans humanitarian transactions to go through the Central Bank of Iran. So it actually started yep. to ratchet those, those sanctions down. Around the same time, Germany actually did a prisoner swap with Iran, and Germany swapped out at, at a person who had been arrested at the request of the U.S. They they swapped the, the essentially the U.S. Iranian prisoner for um, a, a German that was being held in Iran, and they announced it during a security conference in Munich while while Secretary of State Pompeo was there, and the Americans said nothing, and that. I find that pretty weird. The silence speaks right. volumes. The, the silence. Yeah. It, you would think that this would have been created some sort of big incident if the Germans had done this, at least without American acquiescence. And and as question, and as reported, that we believe that the extradition proceedings had essentially wrapped up, and he was ready to be sent right. to the U.S. The and, only thing was, yeah. that was left was for the German government to <laughs> sign off on and the hand extradition. him over. Yeah, exactly. And so, right. So those two events. So Khalili's release. And then the the humanitarian, uh, the general license for CBI and the related guidance on the humanitarian trade that sort of backed up what was introduced in October of last year. And the f introduction of the very first one of those programs with Switzerland, where that's now been yep. established. Um, that was just in very end of February. That was the 27th of February. That pretty much takes us to the present. And then just this week. So, again, we're recording this March 5. Just earlier this week, it was widely reported that um, the Atomic Energy Authority has recently, based on their recent inspections, they've confirmed that Iran's uh, enriched, enriched uranium has now tripled in the last several months. And so they're they're well above the thresholds that they agreed to with the, under the JCPOA. They're now creeping up on an, a sort of a an amount of stockpile that could lead to what is known as sort of a reduced breakout timeline to actually have a nuclear um, device. And they also said that they, there may be other sites in country that, that they believe are also hiding away stockpiles. So that's pretty provocative, and that's getting a lot of attention. But I think buried within that, or the flip side of that, is a lot of observers are saying, well, what else are they, what else are they supposed to do? If they have to signal some kind of strength, and they have to signal that the U.S. is not going to push them around, this is maybe the only way to get them back to get the U.S. back to the table is to just say, well, if we're not going to if you're not bound if by the deal, no deal, if there's no deal, nobody's following it anymore, even though the Europeans desperately want to keep following it and keep it in place. Then we're going to we're going to do this, even though we're saying we're not going to build a bomb, but we're going to enrich and you have to deal with those consequences. And is that enough to sort of nudge everybody toward further discussions? Yeah. And I guess the to me, the, the bottom line here, the reason that I have kind of this whole um if not a tinfoil hat, an aluminum foil hat on, is there's all these instances of restraint between the U.S. and Iran over the last few months. You know, setting aside the Soleimani blow-up, but even that ended in a way that was pretty surprising with kind of both sides backing down quite a bit. And then all these other things that we're talking about are kind of a ratcheting down on the U.S. side, restraint, um, and, and essentially you have both the Iranians and the U.S. exercising way more restraint than they had been exercising over the past two years. And the question in my head is, well, why? Why are both sides behaving much more responsibly? Um, you know, you'd think that in response to the uranium enrichment, we'd have all sorts of uh, threats or escalations coming out of the U.S., um, and we're not seeing that. So so why is the U.S. kind of being being 
much more restrained than it's been. Why are the Iranians not don't seem anxious to to amp up the the temperature between the two? It's really hard to figure out. And one possibility is that there are talks going on, and that there are talks going on, uh, and that's why things are happening because they're pursuant to unspoken agreements that we don't know about, but that are taking place. Or at least there's some understanding that both sides will kind of stand down for the time being in terms of lobbying rhetorical barbs at one another and try to keep the temperature relatively calm while this plays out. I mean, in the delicate dance of diplomacy, all of the signals are there that that there is something going on. What exactly? We don't know. To be clear, we are truly kind of speculating, reading the tea leaves here. And I think this is also complicated by the fact that here in the U.S., we're in an election year, and the idea that uh, that this administration would either a be able to get a deal done that could essentially supplant the JCPOA, or you know that the the stars would align to have that happen in the next six to nine months seems to be hard to hard to fathom. But you know, it's you never know. Right. I mean, so the the only thing that I would say to that is that it's just a, it just seems very different than than it was 6 months or a year ago where both sides seemed to be going out of their way to escalate and there wasn't any pretense of of, you know, uh, prisoner swaps or there weren't things that were happening where there would be some one side would really escalate and the other side would kind of de-escalate and then there seemed to be almost a mutual de-escalation in connection with the the the, the last the the Iranian strike that was responded to by sanctions that were for the most part I mean we talked about this last time they were for the most part superfluous and so and and then ratcheting I thought a big a big change was this general license that related to the Central CBI. Bank of yeah. Iran because it really seemed designed to um, help humanitarian trade in Iran in a way that the the government the U.S. government has gone almost out of its way to say on the one hand over the last year yes humanitarian trade with Iran is fine and then do almost everything in its power to, to stop more that difficult. from, from yeah. happening one that, one, just one last point on that and I think we should probably move on but. Um, in the frequently asked questions that OFAC released relating to the General License 8 and the humanitarian mechanism that's now in place, there was a there was an FAQ that is released, and I'll see if I can find the number here. I think it's, two, it's 823, FAQ 823, that says explicitly, non-U.S. persons generally do not risk exposure under U.S. secondary sanctions if they engage in this conduct, with a few caveats, but... OFAC does not issue guidance like that. Right. We we have asked for guidance like that. Many people have asked for guidance right. like mean, that. I mean, I think I was one of the asker of the y- frequently yeah. asked questions, or maybe ten of the askers it, of the frequently it, asked questions. I mean, we were frequently asking a, this this particular question exactly and right. never got an answer. That's exactly right. And yet now they have decided that they can they can put something out into the world like that. They never do that. I cannot stress enough that this is really some fairly outlier behavior from OFAC in terms of being that clear about don't worry about secondary sanctions. They never say that. So I agree. I think that's, this is, feels like it's something a little different. So, you know, what that ultimately means we will see, but that's for now, we'll, we'll have to keep a close watch. And as I'm sure everybody realizes by now, I'm sure we will be talking about Iran on our next pod and probably forevermore until, um, the end of time. So. Unless we're talking about Venezuela. Unless we're talking about Venezuela. So let's go to that, item number two. So Venezuela, uh, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but but basically over the last two or three years, the U.S. has uh, consistently been increasing the sanctions against Venezuela. And and the policy behind the increase in the sanctions is is important. So, so basically the, the U.S. is of the view that the Maduro government um, is illegitimate. They're trying to essentially replace the Maduro government. They've actually uh, selected uh, someone that they believe is more legitimate as the ruler of Venezuela, President Guaido. The the theory of the sanctions is that it is not designed to punish the Venezuelan people. It's not even really designed to punish the Venezuelan governmental institutions writ large. It's designed to punish what the, the U.S. would refer to as the Maduro regime. And so these sanctions are targeted at essentially trying to preserve Venezuelan institutions and to preserve essentially the Venezuelan oil industry, but to stop the the Maduro government from what the U.S. views as essentially uh, 
exploiting and wasting Venezuelan assets and natural mainly resources. Venezuelan yeah. oil, but other natural resources as well. And so the reason that that is important is because that informs what the U.S. has done in terms of the sanctions against Venezuela. On the one hand, a year ago, the U.S. put uh, PETAVESA, the, the national Venezuelan oil company, which is by far their 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 most profitable and most valuable uh, asset, onto the specially designated nationals list. So it made PETAVESA and SDN, uh, and, and then... Uh, about eight months later, it made the government of Venezuela an SDN. And so it made it very difficult to do business with the government of Venezuela, very difficult to do business with PETAVESA. It created a bunch of exceptions. And one of the exceptions to that has been that there is a general license. It's General License 8. Uh, there's versions of it. It's this gone like from 5, 8A to yeah, 8E e now yeah. is what it is. And, and the general license is it allows certain uh, certain companies that have joint ventures with 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 PETAVESA because one way that the Venezuelan oil business operates uh, quite often is that the, the PETAVESA, the national oil company, will own a portion of the company that then uh, gets the oil out of Venezuela, but it's, it's often a joint venture with U.S. companies, European companies, sometimes Russian companies that, that own part of it. Now, usually the way that the resources are divided is that the, the foreign company uh, like the U.S. company, will come in and build the infrastructure to get the oil out in PETAVESA, which is the national oil company, and so it owns it as, as a result of it being in Venezuela, essentially contributes the, the, the resources from, the, from Venezuela, but the, 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 uh, the infrastructure is provided by these other companies. And so uh, General License 8 allows those joint ventures to continue even though uh, at least certain named ones, Chevron is one of them, there's, there's four other companies that, are, that also are named on the, the general license, it allows the joint ventures to continue in a way that they wouldn't be allowed to continue otherwise because dealing with PETAVESA as an SDN is potentially sanctionable, and if you're a U.S. person, it's also illegal. And so general license eight allows those joint ventures to continue. Now, why does it do that if PETAVESA is, is off limits? The reason is kind of getting back to this original point. We're, we're trying to preserve the infrastructure so that when President Waido or someone that the U.S. views as, as legitimate takes over the government of Venezuela, the oil fields are not out of business. The oil fields are still working. But the, the general license is set up in a way that's designed to try and keep PETAVESA from getting money that would then be sent back to the Maduro government to keep it operating. And you can also imagine if, if Chevron were to pick up and leave Venezuela, then what happens is right. the government swoops in and starts just takes that over, essentially commandeers the, the facilities down there, and, and that's even makes sort of compounds matter. Right. So, so that's exactly right. So Tim's point about the underlying reasons for the sanctions are really important. And so I think what I what I kind of see here, so the the recent reports are, so this, this most recent general license that was reissued in January, so it's six weeks ago or so, mid-January, January 17, and I believe, so we're talking about mid-April when this is going to expire. It's 90 days. And there are reports from unnamed sources who are clearly coming out of either the Treasury Department or the White House or the State Department is that this is it. We're not doing this again. And we're going to pull the plug on this general license and all these companies are going to have to pick up and get out of Venezuela. Now, to Tim's point, why would they do that at this point? Well, I think in terms of the ultimate goals of the sanctions, which is to get Maduro out, which is legitimately to cause regime change. And I think they felt like they had him on the ropes a year ago. And he was about to go, and everybody recognized President Guaido as the legitimate leader, and yet Maduro clings to power. He's still around, and he hasn't gone. And so I think if they pull the plug on this, and if they sort of choking off at least another sort of source of significant revenue for PETAVESA in the state, and coupled that with what we saw also recently, which is a designation of a Rosneft, a Russian sub based in Switzerland that was trading in Venezuelan oil, another signal that we're, they're trying, they're continuing to try to fence off and, and sort of cut off every bit of oil revenue they can, that getting Chevron out of there and getting some of these other U.S. players out of there, that could be a, you know, a real kneecapper for the Maduro regime. So I think this is a card they didn't want to have to play, but now they may feel like they need to play. Yeah, I mean, it's a really risky strategy, though, yeah. though because on the one hand, um, it, it essentially puts PDVSA and Maduro in charge of these these oil fields, right. whereas currently 
um, because you've got these American companies that are there and doing business, A, they, they are, uh, you know, they're the beneficiary of General License 8E. So they are going to make sure that those terms are complied with and that the sanctions are complied with on the, the areas that they're continuing to operate in. You know, they have every incentive to do it, and by all accounts, they're doing it. And so OFAC in the U.S. has some control over those, those joint ventures in a way that if you kick them out, they completely lose control over that because it, it goes to PETAVASA. Um, the other thing that, that my understanding is that these U- U.S. companies are doing is that they are they're maintaining the oil fields in a way that because the sanctions have deprived PETAVASA and the Maduro government of resources, they may not have the resources to do, to, to do. And so by kicking the U.S. companies out, if that's what they decide to do, they're taking the risk that A, PETAVASA will control everything, and B, PETAVASA won't maintain it. And so you, you may have chaos in these oil fields. And so if they're really worried about wasting assets, these oil fields, if they go to, you know, if they, all, if they go backwards 10, 15 years because the oil wells degrade and, 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 and you know, it could be an environmental disaster, it could be an economic disaster, all the people who are working in the oil fields could, could lose their jobs. And so I, I agree that it seems to be they've decided that this isn't creating enough chaos. And so, you know, pulling out the U.S. will create more chaos in the oil fields. But, but you know, to what end, I guess, is really the question. And the Rosneft designation kind of is the other part of the strategy, because if you pull the U.S. out and you stop these joint oil fields from operating, you've also got to make sure that there's nobody to buy the oil if PETAVASA is running it. And so I think that's where the Rosneft designation is, is that it's essentially saying, and anybody who is operating in the oil sector of Venezuela, which is sanctionable currently, is is at risk, even if there's not a U.S. nexus. And so... Um, there's a lot left to, to come in Venezuela, but I do think that this could be that this um, threat, if if it is carried out, could be a big turning point in terms of just trying to create total chaos in the Venezuelan region, region and then see what happens. Now, it, to be fair, the last time this general license was up for renewal, the same sort of stories came right. out, and so so I I do think you have to take what's happening now with a, with grain a little of salt. grain of salt. Yeah. It's not up until April twenty second, and so between now and then, things could change. Could turn out that there's another general license eight F in April, and and we're talking about this again in six months. But yeah. but I I I've seen other signals in other areas of the Venezuela sanctions that make me think that that, that there is there is a turning point that's happening, and and the the policy may be to create more chaos in Venezuela. Right. And I think, uh, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's hard to know, uh, how much of this is, uh, we can sort of take to the bank, but in any event, I think, right. We're about six weeks away from the expiration of this general license. So keep an eye on this. By the time this goes out to the world, we'll probably only be about three or four weeks away. So, um, it is definitely worth monitoring. And, I would also expect if they do pull the plug, there'll be a wind down period. There'll be some other things, but still we're talking about perhaps within the next few months, another pretty significant inflection point with respect to the sanctions program targeting Venezuela and Maduro specifically. So we'll have to wait and see on that. So I think with uh, Venezuela now behind us, so we have Iran, Turkey, Venezuela. Now we're going to go across the world to China and North Korea because we also can't get through um, more than a few minutes without talking about uh, these these folks as well. And so uh, item number three, earlier this week, just on Monday, actually, there was a um, both a, it's sort of a dual criminal and administrative action against a couple of Chinese nationals relating to a, a massive money laundering scheme uh, assisting a North Korean uh, state-sponsored hacking group that hacked some crypto currency exchanges for to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars apparently uh, allegedly according to the uh, the charging documents and the public statements that the Justice Department the Treasury Department have made on this so we'll we'll go through this one pretty quickly but I do think uh, on the last episode we did reference the one individual who had traveled to North Korea who had been in who had been charged with sanctions evasion um, and and that was relating to cryptocurrency as well the North Koreans clearly, because of their um, sort of the length of time that the embargo has been in place and the severity of the sanctions from really all around the world, given the position of, of North Korea with respect to the, 
the sanctions that we see not from the not only from the U.S. but from the U.N. as well, and uh, other parts of the world, they they are definitely in the vanguard with it when it comes to the crypto game. And it, when you see, and obviously based on some other prior activities, their uh, I think their cyber capabilities uh, are also uh, sort of in the vanguard as well with with respect to. Uh, their ability to hack or uh, intrude, whether it be banks or obviously these crypto uh, currency exchanges. So I think it, we said this the last time, and I think it bears repeating. This this is an area where I think there's going to be a lot more action in terms of both on the, on the criminal side and the administrative side for, for sanctions generally uh, over the next few years. And I think we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg on this. So this case, I think, is a, is a useful uh, reminder of that. I think a couple of other sort of related points that I'll make and then throw it to Tim. Another good reminder that sort of China is the gateway to North Korea in the eyes of the enforcers here in the United States. And so coming down hard on, on Chinese individuals and institutions who are involved in sanctions evasion, money laundering, and the like is a high priority for our government here in the United States. Um, this also was, as I said, a coordinated effort. We have a criminal case. We have a forfeiture action that's sought against hundreds of millions worth of assets and accounts uh, that were allegedly linked to this hack of the crypto exchange. And uh, OFAC acted at the same time to put these individuals who were allegedly responsible for the money laundering piece on the SDN list at the same time under, I would note, both the North Korean uh, executive order, one of the North Korean executive orders, and one of the cyber executive orders. So dual authorities that are cited for the for the uh, designation. Um, and so I'll, I'll I'll throw it to you there. That I think it's sort of this just without getting into too much detail about all the facts here, which are complicated. Um, I think it's a useful sort of uh, data point in terms of the evolution of these types of enforcement. Uh, measures. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a ton to say about this, but one thing that struck me was kind of when we were when I was was getting ready um, and kind of reading some of the background materials on all of the matters that we talked about is how um, Hulk Bank seems kind of so 2012 in terms of sanctions evasion. So you know, there the sanctions evasion was that they were essentially moving money from a Turkish bank account to an Iranian bank account by taking blocks of gold out to the Middle East and selling the blocks of gold and then kind of sending the proceeds from the gold sale to Iran. It's, it's literally analog sanctions evasion it's versus like, digital sanctions yeah, evasion. Yeah, and so now what you've got is, no, we're not going to go sell a bunch of gold and kind of convert it into, like, dollars and, like, carry it across the, the you know, uh, the Persian Gulf um, in boats in order to get into Iran. We're going to hack into the banks themselves, pull a bunch of crypto out, and then just open up and put it into an account we've created, and we're going to, that's how we're going to evade sanctions, and we're going to, we're going to create all these fictional accounts um, digitally, and we're going to do it uh, immediately and from our computers sitting in China and North Korea. So it seems like um, there is a, a much more modern, uh, way to evade sanctions. So Hulk Bank really does look like a very old-timey kind of very <laughs> legacy type case. Not to say that that type of evasion is not still going on, but you know, but I, yes, a very w a point well taken. And, and I would say related to that, directly related to that, and this is the last point I'll make on this, uh, I think this, this matter also highlights something that's a, again, kind of a brewing challenge and dilemma, which is on the compliance side, both for exchanges and other uh, sort of links in the crypto blockchain universe, uh, how do you actually guard against this stuff? The, as reported here, it's a it's a pretty traditional kind of malware exploit that's yep. used to do the hack. And then, you know, the Chinese actors are the ones who are taking the money out ultimately. And how are you vetting those accounts? How are you vetting those users? How are you, um, how are and then the banks that are linked up with these exchanges when things are flowing into these accounts? How are you? How are you vetting that? What are you doing from the sanctions compliance, AML compliance standpoint? Those are really challenging questions, and I think to some degree, and, and we know this from questions we get from folks in this area that um, this is still kind of early days for a lot of these people, e even the ones that want to get it right. They're ha they're, it's challenging to sort of figure out how you do this in practice, given the way that this is all uh, the systems and, and the connectivity that we're talking about here and the anonymity that you're talking about in a lot of ways with certain elements of this. So 
I'll just put that out there and then. No, I, I think we're going to hear a lot more about yes. crypto hacking China and North Korea. I mean, we know from our practices that the China-North Korea link is one that the enforcers are very, very interested in right now. And this yeah. is a, a good example, but it won't be the last example. Yeah. All right. So with that, let's leave North Korea and China behind. And let's, let's, uh, let's go to another continent that we haven't really talked about today, which is uh, Europe and Switzerland in particular to to do our last big item. Right. What would a podcast be without an OFAC settlement? Yep. So there really was only one since the last time that uh, the last podcast that we did, and it was, it involved an entity called uh, Societe Internationale de Telecommunications Aeronautique. We'll call them CETA because that's the, the initials. Um, and CETA is, is basically a, an international body that uh, facilitates uh, aviation worldwide. And it turns out that and 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 you know CETA CETA provides communication services. It actually provides baggage tracking ser- services, which is all good. And and they do this for many airlines around the world. But it turned out that some of its customers, longstanding customers, in fact, were Mahan Air, Syrian Arab Airlines, Caspian, Caspian Air, Air um, three entities that have been on uh, the SDN list as specially designated global terrorists, SDGTs, which we talked about in connection with the Central Bank of Iran. And so... Um, for, for years. For years, way, since yeah. since basically 20... 14, 15. 20, and, and, yeah. and I think Mahan might even date back to 2011. Yeah. And so so they've been, on, they've been on the list for nine years now, and they were members of, of CETA. And get and and taking advantage of these, uh, you know, aviation facilitation services for quite a long time, OFAC found out and uh, did an investigation in which CETA apparently cooperated. Uh, it, 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 it what what struck and and eventually, um, you know, uh, the and and CETA caught this, removed the membership. Um, stopped providing the services, but then also settled with OFAC. One thing that struck me about the settlement action is when you you tallied up the number of violations by the the maximum penalties for the SG, SDGT. I think it the, was massive. I think that the the maximum penalty was something along the lines of thirteen billion dollars. It was um, two point two point four billion was the statutory max. Statutory yeah. max. Okay. Now the guideline, the enforcement guideline number was much much lower yeah, the, than that because we're talking about right. ten thousand violations almost. Right. And, so. I mean that's what when you I mean that's one of the things is that once you. Once you let an SDN into your system, the number of violations tends to compound really rapidly, and so these numbers get huge. Here, I don't think OFAC saw that there was any intentional um, attempt to provide services for SDGTs. They just kind of got involved in the system, didn't really know what to do about it, and turned out um, not to do something that that OFAC thought was was permissible. Yeah, I think two... two Interesting points on this from from my perspective. One is, again, this is a it's a Swiss headquartered uh, entity that had U.S. touch points that yeah, were not that US were not that were not super obvious. They had a messaging service component that was routed through the United States. They had software that was U.S. origin, and they had a tracking component that was hosted on servers in the U.S. So right. these are not. Uh, this is kind of a classic case of perhaps not really mapping and knowing your risk well enough to understand where the sanctions uh, you know, problems could lie, right? And so, in, again, encourage people to, to look at the, uh, the summary of the enforcement action, which is on the OFAC's website, um, because of, it really it takes great pains to kind of you know, lay out in some detail what these U.S. connections were and um, essentially the failings in, in, on the on the front end of, to not pick that up or to pick it up, but not deal with it appropriately. Right. I mean, that's, I, I'd say we see, it's got kind of two components that we see in so many different, um, so many different settlements, so many different uh, prosecutions, so many different charging documents. It is, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's, there's either a failure to recognize, but more often kind of a failure to know what to do when you discover, when you do recognize especially when a problem. non-U.S. company discovers that they're dealing with an SDN. Yep. And so they don't they they if they catch it at all, they they catch it in a way that is not helpful. And then the second thing is a failure to recognize these US touch points. That is that um I think that a lot of non-US companies understandably uh 
think that if they're operating in Switzerland, if they are operating without U.S. dollars, if none of their people who are working there are U.S. persons, that they and they they're not providing what they view as U.S. technology or U.S. services, that they don't have enough of a con connection to U.S. to the U.S. to be worried about U.S. sanctions. And you know, I as, I agree with you that OFAC uh, really did go through the U.S. touch points in in some detail. I think because it it wants to send a message to other companies that. They better go through their U.S. touch points with the same sort of detail when they're trying to, to work through sanctions issues. Yeah, I would add, too, that uh, here in particular, this is aviation, right? And Mahan and Caspian Air and, and Syrian Air, these are, I don't, I, I don't want to call them notorious necessarily, but these are well-known kind of sanction parties that are involved in a lot of, uh, you know, have been involved in a lot of alleged bad conduct over the years. In many contexts, and so these are these are pretty, if you know, catching it. This is is not the problem. It's then what do you do about it? And as Tim said, it, being sitting in Europe and not probably understanding necessarily how your systems are set up and what your U.S. touch points may be, that that is a pretty common problem that we see in a lot of cases that both we've done ourselves for clients or that you know are the subject of these enforcement actions. Aviation also, it's worth saying, I think, is just an area of focus for, right. for it always has been and probably always will be for OFAC in terms of imposing sanctions because it's kind of high impact uh, to, to make sure that these sanctioned parties in the aviation industry are, are isolated from, from the U.S. So, so that's something else to bear in mind. And then, um, you know, my last thought on this, in the, in the settlement, they run through all of the steps that have now been taken by the company or will be taken to sort of put in place an appropriate risk-based compliance program. This is continuing the trend that we've seen over the last six months to a year where it's a pretty standard playbook now, in, very consistent with the OFAC compliance framework and guidelines that were issued last spring uh, about what companies need to do to be have in place sort of a, uh, a, a worthy, in the eyes of OFAC compliance program to deal with these risks. Right. I, I think, you know... Brian, you make a great point on the, the industry by industry, and OFAC calls out civil aviation as a high-risk industry. Um, it's done that pretty recently in, in connection with the shipping industry, in connection with oil and gas. Yep. So if you're in industries that OFAC calls out, you should probably be nervous because we don't generally just see one aviation enforcement action at a time. We see a there's a bunch. Year, there's, there's a bunch there's, of files right. sitting on somebody's right. desk and, right. that are waiting to be dealt with. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the banks know that well because they were a high risk industry, and now they're and less of one, but they're still are still but, are. But <laughs> but they're not. You know, they're better. They're farther along in the compliance uh, program and you know sort of evolution cycle than some of these other industries for sure. And the other thing is, is that if you're in the aviation industry, you should be looking very closely at all of the measures that, uh, CETA took to, to enhance its compliance program, because if you wind up with OFAC reviewing your compliance program, it's going to probably be looking for the same sorts of things. So you may want to think about yep. implementing as many as you can now. Exactly. Okay. So with that, uh, we will wrap up. That sort of wraps up the main portion of the of the pod for today. Uh, and without further ado, we're going to go right into the lightning round. We have three topics we're going to hit quickly, and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. So uh, starting number one, and and again, we pledge we're going to try to be more lightning than we have in the past. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's nice. We might need a sound effect, but for now, that'll that'll do. Let's start with number one. We can't get through a pod without mentioning Huawei. Uh, on the, a lot's happened with respect to Huawei since we talked about it uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, at the time, the news was that there were about to be some crushing uh, enhancements to the Huawei restrictions put in place by the U.S. government. That got scuttled at the last minute by objections from the Department of Defense. But then... Uh, that got re revived very quickly, and there was rumored to be a cabinet-level meeting that was going to happen at the end of February where th those restrictions were going to be revisited, along with a few other China-related trade restrictions as well. That meeting, apparently, by uh, the reporting, I believe this is, I saw this in Reuters first, um, that meeting got postponed and is now uh, purportedly going to happen in uh, in about a week, at the end of uh, the next week, we are somewhere around March. I think I saw March 12 was the date. So the question is, and and also I should add that at the time that the um, the meeting was on the books, um, the president tweeted 
suggesting that further restrictions were bad for business in the U.S., and that, which is exactly the reason that the uh, the enhanced restrictions got scuttled in the first place, because DOD and others were worried that it was going to be crippling to innovation in the U.S. and to key strategic developers, manufacturers here in the U.S. that uh, they rely on and that our economy relies on heavily. And, and apparently the president agrees with that because he's tweeted about that. And, and there was a lot written about how he was kind of undercutting the more hawkish elements of his administration and, and Congress who are who are keen to really put, uh, you know, kind of blast Huawei back to the Stone Age, so to speak, with all these restrictions and, and, and go hard against China on all fronts. And so I think where I'll leave it is what do we think is going to happen here? We, we're, I don't know that we know anything more than we did a month ago, but I think, it, again, we're, we're putting this out there because it, this bears watching closely because this is, this is a big one. This is important. I mean, it's a classic tension, right? I mean, sanctions are always bad for business. If you put sanctions on a company that is buying billions of dollars of U.S. products and you say you can't buy any more U.S. products, that definitely hurts the buyer, but it hurts the seller too. Right. And so ultimately, this is a battle between who do you want to hurt? Do you want to hurt the buyer bad enough that you're willing to hurt the sellers as well? Or do you think that what the buyer's doing is not bad enough to, to injure a bunch of kind of innocent bystanders in the U.S. And so far, it seems like President Trump is on the side of the let's not do a lot of collateral damage. Let's even if that means that uh, Huawei keeps doing we're not things gonna that we don't like. Yeah, we're not going to put the screws to Huawei any further. So so, yeah, so I think that just again, we mentioned that quickly here at the end in the lightning round just to, to sort of keep keep focus on this because I think this is in the headlines almost every day and we'll certainly be talking about it more when something eventually comes of this uh, but uh, that's for now I think we'll we'll leave it there big question mark on that one so moving on to item number two so item number two very quickly I just wanted to send a ray of hope to all of those companies out there on the SDN list on Monday buried below the big press announcement related to the uh, Chinese crypto hackers was this kind of final word about, quote, delisting of two Russian entities. And apparently there were two Russian entities uh, that had been placed onto the SDN list in June of 2017 because they had provided oil to North Korea. Um, Their response uh, to being placed on the SDN list was apparently to uh, stop selling oil to North Korea. That was, that was a good move. And then uh, create a compliance program so that they would try not to sell no- oil to the North Koreans or, or anyone else that was subject to sanctions inadvertently. Another good move. And, and OFAC responded to those good moves by uh, delisting them and announcing that sanctions are intended to bring about positive change of behavior. And it described this as a positive change in behavior. And so we wanted to, to, to add this feel-good story about how if you just change your behavior, you too can get off the SDN list. Now, we do have a lot of other clients who've changed their behavior too. So OFAC, if you're listening, um, I, I, it's a good message. You should you should uh, send it more. Yeah. On Tim's last point, very quickly, I, I think that you know there's a lot of uh, uh, legwork that goes into making that case, right? You can yeah. <laughs> obviously talk is cheap. How do you prove it? What do you really need to do to establish that that behavior has been changed? Uh, what level of detail, what level of sort of transparency do you need to go to? What level of proof, quite frankly, do you need to furnish to OFAC to get them to uh, agree that, that behavior's really been changed to a degree that you should be taken off the SDN list? So that's that's the big question, ultimately the secondary question, but the, but Tim's correct. And we do see this obviously from time to time, but uh, we thought it was an interesting counterpoint with the big splashy announcement of the Chinese uh, individuals that were added uh, in connection with the North Korean activity to to uh, shine a little light, uh, a little ray of hope on, on our, our friends at the uh, independent petroleum company in Russia. There is your message of Russian hope and change. There you go. We can all we can all live in harmony. Um, moving on to the last <laughs> the last topic in the lightning round. Uh, this one is this one is true sanctions trade nerd stuff here. So uh, I'm just warning you in advance. And Tim's got some strong feelings on this one. Very strong. So back back last summer, OFAC issued a new uh, interim final rule 
basically amending and updating the reporting requirements relating to uh, blocking and unblocking uh, uh, transactions and uh, rejected transactions. And at the time, there was a big brouhaha in the sanctions bar, at least, and I think in a bit broader than that, but certainly we were part of a number of these discussions because it is, it extended the uh, rejected transactions reporting requirements beyond financial institutions and beyond uh, funds transfers, which is what they've traditionally been, which is obviously pretty limited. And they, by the text of the regulations, they seem to open it up to everybody and everything, sort of every U.S. person, everybody subject to U.S. jurisdiction who had a rejected transaction now had a reporting obligation to OFAC. And so there was a lot of discussion about what does that really mean and how broad is this really and do they really mean it to be this broad and there was a lot of hand wringing and a lot of head scratching about what this would really mean well just a few days ago they finally came out with some uh faqs to address this and lo and behold they don't really clear up much other than to say <laughs> other than to say we expect everybody to follow these rules every all u.s persons not just banks and it really was meant to be broad and good luck that's really, and, and by the way, the fundamental question, what does it mean to actually reject? They ignore not it. Not addressed. They ignore not it. Not defined, not addressed. That is the fundamental question here, and it's not addressed. Right. I mean, so the reason that people couldn't believe that this went beyond financial institutions, this reporting requirement, was because with financial institutions, it's pretty easy to determine what a rejected transaction is. Somebody tries to send a wire and it gets rejected. And so then the financial institution reports that to OFAC as to the rejection and why they rejected it. And to be clear, there's a distinction between rejection and blocking for right. those who don't know. Blocking means you take it and hold it. Right. Rejection means it just, so doesn't, go through. It. It just doesn't go right. through. Okay, yes. so that's pretty easy. Right. But then they, they come out with this new rule that says, okay, so this is going to extend beyond financial institutions. Okay, so you know, OFAC regulates more than financial institutions. Fine, they can, they can pr have some sort of a re reporting requirement. They say it applies to rejected transactions, but they don't tell us what rejected transactions means outside the financial institution context. And that is where the craziness comes in. Because if you are a company that makes stuff and you're thinking of selling something to somebody overseas and you're like potentially going to enter into a contract and then your compliance department reviews it and decides, hey, we're not going to enter into that contract because of sanctions reasons. Normally what would happen before this is you would reject the transaction in some sense because your compliance people told you to, or maybe you had a lawyer who gave you advice to, to reject the transaction. So you don't do the transaction. There's no wire that's instituted. It just doesn't get very far. Without a definition, those sorts of rejected transactions are potentially reportable now, even though you're also supposed to report the reason for the transaction. And so the reason could often be legal advice of either inside or outside counsel who've told you to reject it for sanctions reasons. The other party doesn't often even know why you rejected the transaction and, and never would know, but for this whole reporting requirement. And so there's all sorts of um, questions now about what has to be reported and, and whether or not this thing is going to try and intrude on attorney-client advice, whether or not you have to report transactions, how far you have to get before it becomes a rejected transaction as opposed to one that never got off the ground. Right. Essentially, uh, one quick analog that I'll throw out there and then we'll wrap up is in the criminal context, there's also there's there's the there's the concept of a substantial step, right? right. Have you taken a substantial step in furtherance of a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy, let's say? Here, where's that line? Where right. what do you what what is a substantial step to say that there's a rejection? And there is a definition of transaction in the rule, but it's pretty broad. And to Tim's point, it clearly could cover just ordinary kind of commercial activity and compliance and individuals and lawyers stepping in and being like, no, 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 we can't do that because of this. And if if there's no contract in place, if there's no real offer and acceptance, is that a rejection? I, I mean, I think. This is a big question mark. I think I think opinions vary as to where you draw this line, and I think over time, OFAC has said maybe we will issue examples. I tend to think that they're not going to do that because they would rather they would rather leave this be a big undefined kind of messy area that people who are who are risk averse are going to just stay away from and are going to overreport and. I, yeah, I just, I don't, we don't know, and we don't have enough uh, track record yet, I think, with our clients to know kind of where, and it's a, it's 
going to be very case by case, very fact specific. Outside of the financial context. Right. There is no fair notice whatsoever exactly. at this point as to what a rejected transaction is. And I, nobody knows. OFAC yeah. doesn't know. I, yep. I think they, they would provide guidance if they knew what it was, but I don't think they even know what they and were And that is a useful at. echo of, our, of the ExxonMobil case. And I'm sure somewhere down the road that, you know, there could be, there could be a fight about this or there could be a litigation about this for exactly that reason. So we, we will wait and see that. Uh, like I said, that was some, that was some pretty in the weeds stuff right there to wrap up with today, but, um, but it was but, fast, but it was fast. Yeah, there we go. Pretty lightning. So, uh, and with that, I think, uh, we thanks everyone for tuning in again to embargoed, uh, as always, this is a lot of fun and, uh, we look forward to doing this again in a couple of weeks. Um, please again, feel free to reach out. You can find us, uh, you know, uh, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on email, we're easy to find. We'd love to know what people are thinking about the pod. We'd love to know future ideas, future questions, anything that you'd like us to address uh, down the road. And um, yeah, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Two final thoughts. One, podcast at milshev.com. Send us your send us your questions. Send us your comments. Um, we really will do a mail mailbag edition at some point. At yep. some point in the next couple of months. Absolutely. Um, and the second one is uh, stay sanctions free, my friends. Stay sanctions free. Thank you. Until next time. Mm-hmm.